Welcome to another edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night from high atop Area 51. I am the Dome from the Four Color Vault of Comets in Manchester, New Hampshire. We have Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Hello. Hello, indeed. <laughs> and from the Alston Brighton Hellmouth in Massachusetts, we have Kriana and the Zombrarian tonight. Hello. Hiya. And from... Where are you from tonight, David? <laughs> North or Central Kentucky. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, it just plays I'm, that in, on I'm in transition right now. In transition, we have the wonderfully, incredibly beautiful author, uh, illustrator, David Mack. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to this. You know, that's exactly the sort of opening line, David, that a robot programmed to think it was David Mack would say. Ouch. Which brings us to the topic of tonight's discussion. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is our Philip K. Dick retrospective. is an author who's very near and dear to me, one of the three authors who have profoundly affected my life, uh, the other two being uh, J.D. Salinger and Robert Heinlein. <laughs> and, uh, sorry about that. No Alan Dean Foster? No, definitely no Alan Dean Foster. Oh, my. Don't even start with that. Don't let me derail you. Keep going. Oh, you already did, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and there goes our PG rating once we again. We lost our PG rating years ago. Okay. I want to start off with uh, just uh, setting the Wayback Machine for 1977, uh, which was a very difficult uh, year for the Dome personally. Seeing the monsters and the monsters had seen him. And he was sitting in Worcester, Massachusetts, in a uh, in a library, and basically lost. And I picked up a book called A Scanner Darkly at four o'clock in the afternoon, and sat and read that book from cover to cover until I was thrown out of the library because I had to finish it because I didn't have a library card. And I wasn't about to let it go. Having read the book, I was hooked on Philip K. Dick. I was so stunned that I went home and talked to my wife about it incessantly for two days. And she said, well, you probably should write him a letter. And I thought about it and I went, you know what, you're probably right. And I did. And 
I kind of figured that was going to be the end of it until about three months later uh, when I got a uh, an envelope uh, with really bad underwood typewriter typing on it from Santa Ana, California <laughs> from Philip K. Dick. And I have cherished that letter and the letters that came afterwards for the rest of my life because of what Philip K. Dick meant to me, not just as a writer, but as a human being. Uh, and if I could, I'd like to take a minute and just read an excerpt from that letter. And if anybody minds, too bad, I've muted all your mics. <laughs> you have it. Good try. Thanks. You're welcome. Dear Mame, forgive me for not answering your good letter sooner. I'm in the midst of moving up to Sonoma. Have been since April. Your letter is, and I mean it, one of the best things I've ever received. Which is why I haven't answered sooner. Let me put it this way. Every writer, I believe, has a dream letter in his head, which he hopes someday he'll receive. Your letter is that letter. Thank you so much. A scanner darkly meant more to me than personally any other piece I've ever done. A lot of tears, a lot of love, a lot of pain. And believe it or not, even a certain amount of joy. That's what I feel about it. The girl Donna is based on a girl I once knew and loved very much. To a lesser extent, but a very real extent, this is true of the other characters. Even Jim Harris, as I call him in the novel, although at the time I was quite scared and wary of him, because he was really nuts. I look back with fondness. You're entitled to a good deal of positive karma, that is good karma, for writing that letter to me. I've waited a long time for this letter. With warm regards, Philip K. Dick. I was floored. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, every time I read it, I have, I have a copy of it uh, in a safe deposit box. I mean, I have the original in a safe deposit box and all the letters, but I have a copy of it framed sitting here in my office. And when I write and I get stuck and I get caught, uh, I look at that letter. And it's, uh, it's my muse, and it has been since the day I received it. Wow. That is amazing. He was an amazing man. And if you think about, you know, what he wrote about, how he wrote about it, and what he went through as he was writing it, it's amazing. I mean, if you think, uh, one of his uh, more interesting books, uh, a short story is What the Dead Men Say. Uh, it's a great quote in there. It's, uh, don't try to solve serious matters in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there, it, that was a fantastic letter. I mean, you you wrote Philip K. Dick's dream letter. Um, I know. 
that's an amazing thing to you know yeah. ask him personally say to you. My God, I, I you know, it, it, it knocked. I was, I would, I was unemployed at the time. Seventies uh, were not a really good time for me. <laughs> the late seventies, and uh, I would spend the mornings uh, looking for work in the afternoons hanging wherever I could hang that I didn't have to pay to hang at, like the public library and, and places like that. So I'm ready so, to say woohoo whenever the word library is mentioned. I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't mean to startle her. <laughs> hey, don't. Yeah. I want you to write me a letter. <laughs> a thank you letter, a Christmas card. I don't care. But I... <laughs> You know, that's a good point. Once you got this response from your letter, did this motivate you to write more authors? Um, you know what happened? It motivated him to write back to him. And, uh... Okay. What does that mean? What it means is, I think I, I began to gain an understanding that authors are not just names on the covers. I wrote a letter to Bob Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke. Never got return letters from either of them. <laughs> Clearly you didn't write their dream letters. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, no, well, you know, there, there's something to be said for the fact that there's a lot of kipple that writers get. <laughs> Oh, this is true. And, and you know, it's very difficult for them to, you know, wade through it. And one of the things about PKD was that he was an obsessive compulsive in a lot of ways. Hmm. And one of the ways is, I, I think, was that he read almost everything that came to him in that way. Oh, that's true. Um... Now, before we, we should definitely get back to this. However, um, I would like to uh, bring our guest more into the discussion here. What a great idea. And, uh, well, you know, that's kind of why we have them. Uh, <laughs> it's a reason we have guests, and it's yeah. because... Because they're awesome. They're interesting. But, David, uh, David Mack, you are the creator of the... Uh, deservedly acclaimed series Kabuki. Uh, you did an all-too-brief stint on Daredevil uh, and other various Marvel issues, and now you are going to be adapting Philip K. Dick's stories for Marvel Comics. Um, I just want to write, read the uh, intro that Previews has for Philip K. Dick's Electric Ant, issue one, uh, which will be coming out soon. Uh, says, from the mind of legendary sci-fi author Philip K. Dick, Garson Poole had a pretty great life. Good job, nice apartment, a sexy, flirtatious assistant. Yeah, sounds like he works for Sci-Fi Saturday Night. And then he wakes up in a hospital room. The doctors inform him that he's been in a car accident, and they can't treat him because he's a robot. Specifically, Garson is an electric ant, a human-like robot created and programmed to serve a specific function. But what is Garson's function? How will his friends and co-workers treat him knowing that he's a machine, not a person? And how much of his world is real and how much of it is part of his programming? Written by Kabuki scribe David Mack 
and illustrated by Pascal Alix. David, please tell us about the Philip K. Dick adaptations you're doing. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to. Thanks for the introduction. Um, you know, this began, you mentioned Scanner Darkly. This began uh, when the producer of Scanner Darkly, his name is, uh, the producer of the film, I should clarify. His name is Tommy Pallotta, and he produced Scanner Darkly with director Richard Leakletter. Um, and they also did Waking Life, uh, which directed and Pallotta produced also, which I don't know if you're familiar with it. It also uses a variety of experimental animation, you know, forms over live action, you know, live actors. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I own it. It's excellent. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Waking Life. I've been a fan of it. Um, and in pre-Scanner Darkly, I got a message from on my answering machine from, from Tommy Plata some years ago. And he had found one of my Kabuki books at a bookstore in New York. Uh, it was Kabuki Metamorphosis. Mm. And he called me up and he said he's working on a, uh, a project. Um, I believe at the time this was a project for Microsoft. And he was looking for, uh, uh, for me to do concept designs and, and art for it. Um, but one of the strange philokatic tangents is the writer for the project was the screenwriter for Blade Runner, whose name is Hampton Fancher. Right. And so he said, hey, you know, I've got Hampton Fancher on board. We've got this great story. We want you to be involved. We want to get all of you together and make this work. Um, but I couldn't do the project because I was already in the middle of, I guess it was like my third Daredevil story, and I was deep in the midst of it and, you know, fighting deadlines every day. Um, to get this finished. So I, I, as, as amazing as this project sounded to work with, you know, Hampton Fancher, the, uh, the screenwriter for Blade Runner, I, I wasn't able to accept the project just because of, of time commitments with, with Marvel. But uh, maybe a couple years later, he, had, he, he was looking for another, uh, for he, I think he was just finishing up Scanner Darkly, and he was looking for his next, uh, film project, and he had an interest in adapting Kabuki uh, as a feature film. And we began discussing wow. uh, that, and I was spending a lot of time in L.A. at the time, and he had moved from New York to uh, Santa Monica. So we started discussing, you know, our, our ideas for a Kabuki film together, uh, sort of like riding bikes in Santa Monica and became closer and closer. And he was discussing his, uh, you know, his adventure on putting the Scanner Darkly film together. And, you know, he said to me, you know, I, you know, I really like your books and we're, we're hoping this Kabuki film thing works out. But in the meantime, do you mind, you know, I'm working with the Dick Estate um, so closely on this project and I've, I've become good friends with them. Um, do you mind if I, you know, show them your work as well? And I said, no, that's fine. Um, and I, I didn't realize, I guess he sort of had intentions on, uh, you know, I'm showing them my work as an introduction to, you know, to, to me working with them on some kind of adaptation. And called back and said they liked my stuff and they were interested in, in, in adapting Philip K. Dick's stories to graphic novels and comic books and that they wanted me to do it. So I, I, I flew out and I met for dinner um, Philip K. Dick's daughters, uh, Issa and Laura, and myself and Tommy Pallotta, the producer. And I, I gave him my my view of, of how to how we wanted to approach the story, and they seem to be very much on on the same page with it, and they they really like it. And I think we just kind of we kind of hit everything off. Um, so we knew what we were doing it, and then we then we were able to to, to launch into uh, you know it was it was actually very interesting to consider what what short story 
you know, there's a wealth of short stories. I think there's like 144, 145 mm-hmm. short stories. You know, an amazing amount of work considering that this author died, you know, so, so early. So we, we also enlisted uh, Jonathan Lethem. Are, are you familiar with him, the author Jonathan Lethem? Um, who is isn't yeah. a great writer in his own right, but he's, he's kind of a, Dil- a Phil K. Dick scholar. He's uh, he's on the uh, the commentaries for um, I think there's some special features on the Scanner Darkly film. And myself and Ty Plata and author Jonathan Leeson, we we started combing, you know, all of us combing all the short stories of, of Phil K. Dick just to try to think like, you know, we would love to keep adapting several short stories, but what would be just the perfect one to start with, you know, the one that we thought had the, the quintessential, you know, Dickian themes, you know, the, the, the existential themes. And we all, all three of us kind of zeroed in on, on Electric Ant. Hmm. Now, why is that? that it uh, it, you know, it's, it's I, you know, I, I guess a lot of science fiction has this in common, but essentially it turns all you know thing, um, which in effect, you know, get, it turns on the, you know, up the volume, maybe on the present, or what it means to be, you know, uh, human to give you, and if you say something in the future, and you, you can discuss it without appearing preachy about what's happening now, but you, you can affect, consider, you know, what is happening now. And, and by the same token, this, uh, by this sort of almost starting out as a, as a mystery, in a way, as a mystery story, where, where someone says, oh, I had a new idea, I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm manufactured. Uh, do I have a program? What is that program? Who, who made me? How do I find out uh, what I was made for? And once I find that out, do I then have any free will of my own? And if not, how, how do I make that happen? Really all very existential human questions. So we thought, wow, you know, it's the nature of reality, the nature of what it means to be human, the nature of, you know, who made you or are you programmed? Um, can you control your own reality, or is it controlled for you? Uh, you know, the, the major, the major Dickian themes we thought were, were all crystallized in this short story. Cool. Well, listen. Um, one of the things we want to invite our listeners in tonight, and those of us who are catch, catching us on Podpeats, is that uh, we're going to divert just a little bit from our normal format, even more than we already have. <laughs> and uh, instead of doing one trivia question tonight, we're going to do three. And uh, each of the trivia questions will the uh, first correct answer that shows on our website will win a grab bag of uh, two Kabuki comics. That are signed by David Mack. And we're going to put up our first trivia question right now. You can only win once, people. That's right. <laughs> don't be greedy now. Uh, well, I don't know. Okay, first dystopian question for tonight. What does VALIS, V-A-L-I-S, stand for? Brianna, is that up on the web? It is now. <laughs> oh, you rock. I know. You know, Dave, I was I was reading a book by Lawrence Sutton. Uh, the book is Divine Invasions of the Life of Philip K. Dick. And uh, 
in, in his uh, preface, uh, he says, uh, Dick, during his lifetime, was severely marked down by the majority of science fiction fans on the score of not being a hard science fiction writer who actually knew anything about physics or biochemistry or genetics. Rather, he was regarded as a soft science fiction writer of the genre whose talking machines and manipulative political regimes were made up spur of the moment in homage to the potboiler standards of the pulps. Um, and I guess it's kind of true. Uh but the, the real sense is that over the years, over, over especially uh, in, in the 80s and 90s and, and past the turn of the century, his uh, depth has grown as, as, and his, uh, the amount of people who know, understand, and really appreciate what he's come to write uh, because of the general over-pervasive fear of, of the unknown that kind of pervades his books and tends to pervade our society right now. Yeah, you know, he, he was incredibly prescient, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and not having, you know, not being sort of mired down in this and sort of hard science and, and physics, um, I think sort of gave him a, a kind of liberty and limberness of mind in which you know he was just able to use his imagination. Uh, you know, I, I think even in science, I think that kind of limberness and that kind of conceptual dexterity uh, is the most important thing in science itself. You know, ahead of having a, a a large background, you know, which which can make you encumbered by the information. If you think of Einstein, it's his you know greatest work was made when he was a patent clerk on his off hours based on a, a daydream of what it would be like to, to ride on a beam of light. Um, and, you know, that, that was the basis for relativity later. So I think what happens is if, if, you, if you are not encumbered by all of this extra mechanics of the situation um, and you let your imagination, you know, and, and your heart and your dreams kind of lead the direction, I think, I think the rest of that kind of follows. It's 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 very clear uh, to those who don't embrace a dystopian future, but certainly have seen the oh how to put this the de-evolution of society from the 60s through the 70s through the 80s through the turn of the century have seen the loss of uh, personal uh, freedom, have seen the loss of personal privacy, have seen uh, the government talking to us. Please hang up and try again. There's, there's a great scene, and I wish I could remember the book, where the uh, the appliances, you don't buy the appliances, but you have to work for the appliances to get them to do what you, they want for you. <laughs> and yeah, the metaphors are amazing, aren't they? And, and, and you sit there, and, and, and you, I, I'm continually stunned by how well he understood where we were going. 
Uh, yeah, I, I was, I've always been fascinated by the uh, the empathy box. Um, you know, the, yes! Oh my God, yes! You know, the empathy box, which, you know, maybe in a, in a certain way is not unlike a, a laptop these days where we're all sort of plugged in and, you know, can experience the same kind of thing simultaneously. You know, everybody uh, puts their hands in this empathy box and, and can feel all at the same time, uh, you know, supposedly the, you know, the passion of, of, the, of Palmer Eldridge and oh. what he's feeling. We're doing that right now. <laughs> Pretty much we are. Live. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I get the impression that, you know, he, he had, he had such a, a, a work, you know, commitment, commitment in order to put these books out. He had to, he had to fly by the seat of his pants in some ways, um, which I think worked to his benefit to a certain degree because he didn't second guess everything that he wrote. Um, and some, there have been some critics about this, you know, that, that say, you know, it, it, it's not as, it's, it's researched and it's not as supported as certain things, but I feel like him letting letting it fly like that and enforcing himself to, to work so quickly and make so many different stories and start them and finish them and start the next one, um, you know, really let him kind of get in touch with a, a level of his subconscious, um, you know, more so than all this extra research. And I think anytime if you look in human history of when we we do make some kind of jumps in technology. It's really led by imagination first, you know, it's, it's led by like, you know, what if, you know, what if this, or how cool would it be if this happened? And you get that kind of, that idea first, and then society sort of, you know, and technology shapes itself around that years later. And yet what Dick did was, was say, instead of saying how cool would it be, he took, he took the, 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 the other side of the looking glass and went, how scary would it be? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you look at the original book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and disregard completely the five different cuts of the movie Blade Runner. Is it five? Have we decided that there are five? Yes. I think there are actually five, yeah. In the big box that there are. Yeah. What are they called? Because there's like... The final cut, the original cut, the director's cut. What else is there? Just um, Bob's cut the, and the cross one. cut, and then yeah. But if you look at that original, it starts with Deckard in bed with his maid dialing up his mood organ mm -hmm. to decide what kind of mood he's going to be in today. And he looks at his schedule and says, well, I'm scheduled to be this kind of mood because I have to do this and this. And his, I'm not sure if it's his, I think it's his wife uh, or girlfriend, you know, is, is, is fights against it and finally gives in to say, I'll be whatever mood you want me to be. I'll just hate doing it. And if you look at, you know, if, if you take it and lift it out of its context, and think of all the people who are on mood-soothing, mood-altering drugs right now. What the hell's the difference? Yep, it's awesome. Hey. Uh, <laughs> you know what? This uh, I want to just uh, bring that up. Uh, now that's a very good point, though. Um, that is that is a scene 
that is not in any of the versions of Blade Runner. Uh, Blade, Blade Runner itself cut out the whole thing about mercerism. All the religious overtones from Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep are not in Blade Runner. Correct. David, do you would you be cutting out anything from the short stories that you felt would not serve it in this new graphic novel format? And uh, if or would uh, the Dick Estate allow you to make cuts if you wanted to? Well, the, the short answer is no. I'm, I'm not cutting out things that are in the short story. But the detailed answer is that's kind of the beauty of adapting a short story versus a novel. Because a novel is pretty dense. A novel is packed with a lot of layers of information. And, you know, it's meant to be experienced as a novel. And when you try to adapt that into a film... Um, just by the nature of each of the mediums, it, it's almost necessary to streamline a certain amount of things to fit the, you know, the vast expanse of a novel into a two-hour viewing experience. By contrast, uh, a short story um, you know, is it, much smaller. And in fact, I've kept everything that was in the short story, but we now actually have a little bit more room in the, uh, the medium of the comic book story. So... I have room to, to visually let a lot of the things in the short story breathe a little bit more than they did in the short story. So everything that's in the short story is in this, but actually there are things in the short story that are just kind of mentioned offhandedly and never uh, sort of you know, referred to again um, that I can kind of have a little bit extra room that I can kind of uh, give another reference to and let it, let it pay off later in the story and just visually give a, give a certain scope to the story. Um, that you don't have in the short story. But, you know, but, novels on their own are kind of, you know, reductive process where, where the, you know, short story turned into a, a graphic novel gets a little bit more breathing space. Right, but are you, let's say that there was something that you wanted to put in there to elaborate on. I mean, would you be allowed to put in, like, a, a line of dialogue that wasn't from the original story? Or is that something yeah, you've ever even yeah. considered doing? No, yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of necessary. We we had you know we all we all had that discussion. Um, you know, we are basically we had to decide early on: do we want this to be very true to the short story, or is the Dick Estate kind of looking for this to be, um, you know, some taking that at, you know, like like a lot of the film adaptions have Phil K. Dick to take you know a certain concept of it and then you know turn it into an action story or something um, via film. But we made a, made a decision early on that we wanted to keep it as close to the short story as possible. But we did want to flesh out, you know, the world there. We, we did want to say, like, hey, here's, in a way, the film version of the short story, um, but having everything, having the same basis and the same respect and the same, you know, um, you know truth that the, the short, that the, that the initial story had in this. But... Yeah, there are there are there are a few uh, finesses, and there there is there's definitely extra dialogue, um, and we were also considering that the story Electric Ant um, was actually kind of you know Phil K. Dick did this a lot where he would write a short story about something that he would have a germ of an idea that intrigued him in that short story, and then he would go back and revisit that in a novel and expand it. So in fact, the short story Electric Ant. It's sort of the germ of the, uh, you know, the replicant idea that he went back to and, and fleshed out more at Electric Sheep to a certain extent. Um, 
So I, I was also I also like the idea that we have room that we can kind of we can kind of make references to other Philip K. Dick stories, and it's almost as if there's a Philip K. Dick universe to a degree. So I wanted to make um, you know certain references here and there that kind of link other Philip K. K. Dick stories uh, in, in some kind of some kind of kinship, you know, with, without making them contradictory or without making them you know necessary. But if you're a Philip K. Dick reader. You will catch, you know, a reference to Perky Pats, or you'll catch a reference to Homer oh, Eldred. <laughs> you'll catch, you know, like in the original short story, that the term electric ant is just what they called it. But I thought, hmm, what if the electric ant is actually a slang term um, for that? The actual term is called electricant, um, and it's actually a precursor, a, a, an older version of the later developed. Replicant. Yeah. Nice. Without, and I didn't have to change the, the words at all. I just took electric ant and I smashed it together. And they're still called electric ant, but we know that, you know, when you make it at the model, you don't think like, hey, this new design is called an electric ant. It was sort of, it was called an electric ant as a, you know, as sort of, um, you know, an, an e-person or something, you know. <laughs> so that became a slang term, and it's it's like a, a modest reference to replicant. But we did have another concern in that because different studios, uh, film studios, uh, you know, own the licenses to film adaptations, we couldn't use terms that were invented in the films themselves. We had to use the terms that were invented in the source material uh, right. of the film. So. So I think there were some times where I had a reference to the Tyrell Corporation or something else that we had to go back and we had to uh, we had to weed those kind of detailed references out. But <laughs> but there's just enough that if you like a lot of Philip K. Dick stories, you should get like you'll get like little moments of joy here and there connecting some things. And yeah, that's me... the best. That's the best kind of thing to read, you know, after the fact as far as adaptations go because. Those little references in TV shows, in movies, in comic books, that's what wins the fan base over because it's like not just you're in this high tower writing something, but you know who your audience is and you want to, you know, sort of play to them and say, I know you're going to catch this, so I'm going to slip this in here. I'm just testing you. And it, it yeah. just gives them this jolt of, that is so awesome, every time it happens. <laughs> but you also know who your universe is, and that's the important thing. And that's, yeah. that's the one thing that I think PKD always, even when he lost grip of the universe that we're in, he still Which, had... Which, by the way, Dome, is kind of a, uh, you know, an interesting theme in the story itself. When right. You, when you spend so much time creating your own reality, then you have to question, you know, which of these realities is, is more real, the one that I find myself creating all the time or the one that other people say is the real one? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in his uh, short story, How to Build a Universe That Doesn't Fall Apart Two Days Later, uh, one of my favorite quotes of his is, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. <laughs> and, it, and it's that kind of, of sardonic truth that just permeates what he does. It's like you would think that he was being sarcastic, except you know that he's right. Let me ask you guys here. Uh, I, I was asked this. Uh, I was telling people... Uh, 
hyping this special up. And I was actually asked the question, why would you want to do a special about Philip K. Dick? And I, I think it's a worthy question just to just throw out here. Why Philip K. Dick? Why would today's audience, is Philip K. Dick still relevant? And why would people today want to be reading his stories and the new adaptations? What does he have to offer? David, do you want to start with that? And I'll be happy to chime in afterwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like you had referenced earlier, uh, you know, originally he, he had a certain amount of critics, and so people didn't consider him, you know, true sci-fi. And it was, it was a, he was considered a very pulpish writer at first. But, you know, I think now the, um, you know, the American Library of Congress has enlisted his books in it, and um, he's becoming more and more recognized because, in fact, a lot of the things that he that he wrote about are things that you you could relate to what is happening right now. You could relate to modern day times, not not dissimilar from from Orwell in a lot of ways in that respect. Um, but with but with Phil Kedick, it was always the imagination I think that, that led the way. You know, combined with paranoia, you know, the imagination of you know a fantastic concept. But he really, um, in a way, made a friend of his fears and paranoia. Uh, as a resource for his for his work, you know, it wasn't just like Dom said, "Would this be cool?" It was also like, "Oh my goodness, I feel like this is what's happening now, uh, and I don't like this feeling in society." If I'm to follow, if I'm to turn the volume up on that and follow where that path leads into the future, this is how I would see it. And in a way, this is a warning, you know, possibly to people on that path into the future. Yeah, thanks for throwing that softball at me there, X. I really appreciate it. <laughs> was it because, a softball or a hardball? No, this was a softball, and I'll tell you why. Um, T.S. Eliot once wrote, It happens now and then that a poet, by some strange accident, expresses the mood of his generation at the same time that he is expressing the mood of his own, which is quite remote from that of his generation. And... That, in a lot of ways, describes the, 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 the long, strange trip that Philip K. Dick's literature has taken from the 70s, where it was considered a very dark, dystopian hell that, oh, my God, what is wrong with this man, too? Oh, my God. Now we're looking at him and we're going... Wow, he got it. He got it, and he got it really, really well. And if you look at uh, the short stories, if you look at the novels, if you look at the overriding themes, as well as some of the very, very hard-line detail, it's very eerily contemporary. Well, you bring that up, and this is the dead redhead. And I will never forget that it was during the early 90s, I had been reading one of his novels, and to this day I still cannot remember which one it was, but they actually talked about President Schwarzkopf. And I was reading that as the first <laughs> Middle East War was going on, and it completely scared the crap out of me. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's a good point. Have anybody noticed that the more you read Philip K. Dick, the more that strange stuff seems to happen? You are absolutely right. I was going to say, in the process of this, there, there were an incredible amount of synchronicities in my life that kind of led up to the situation. 
as a matter of fact, I, I was working on my most recent Kabuki series, Kabuki to Alchemy, and I had, while I was working on that, I happened to be reading a biography of Philip K. Dick, the um, you know I I am dead and you are not biography from the French author. Oh, I am alive and you are dead. Uh, yeah, it's so I'm reading, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm reading the story and I'm I'm, I'm I, of his life. So I'm reading what you know what was inspiring what books and when he what wrote what books and during what books he married what women and had what children. And then by the time I finished uh, the biography, I got a call to meet his his children uh, and, and work with them on this. So I, I found it very strange that it happened quite like that. And, you know, as Doan was saying before, with all his ideas then turning contemporary later, you wonder if, is, is it so much that he was, uh, he was prophetic in a way that he wrote, or was there, was there also a certain amount of self-fulfilling prophecy in, in what he wrote? Because... His works began to trickle in, just a trickle at first, but trickling in to affect contemporary society um, as books. But then movies began to be adapted from his books, and then you know I think there are about a dozen different Philip K. Dick adapted films now. And I, I think not only was he were his stories prescient, but in what they wrote and compared to what you know society's become now. But I think you can't unintertwine that from how his works actually shaped some of society in the process. Well, which, brings us, which brings us to one final quote uh, that I'm going to throw out uh, before we go to trivia question number two, which is, to me, it is the ultimate heroic trait of ordinary people. They say no to the tyrant, and they calmly take the consequences of this resistance. Nice. My God! I mean, my God, think about Tiananmen Square. 50 years after he wrote that. Well, I was going to mention the fact that, you know, he has been, he had been diagnosed as schizophrenic. Let's not forget that there are some cultures in this world that do not see people from the medical model, but when they do have somebody in their midst who the medical model would consider to be schizophrenic, they're considered to be the shamans of their village. Absolutely, absolutely. No, no you're right. Yeah, there are there are certain there are certain you know I guess people who fall under probably the title of, of artist in some sense who who go beyond that title and and become almost you know shamanic in a certain sense, and some of them are. Um, you know, sci-fi authors like, you know, like, like Philip K. Dick. Let's uh, hit our second trivia question for the night. Our Philip K. Dick uh, special rolls on. And Philip K. Dick wrote The Man in the High Castle, which was guided by what divination system? Oh, I knew that one. <laughs> well, don't give it away. I, I actually suggested uh, we, 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 actually... Were, we, we were meeting. I was meeting with Tommy Plot, and we were we were discussing different um, ways that we would choose, uh, you know, which story to do in what order and what artist to work with. And I actually suggested uh, using this divination system. Uh, for, you know uh, what? It, it, it if you shoot us an email right now, you could win some autographed uh, David Matt email. <laughs> <laughs> comment, 
comment X. Comment on the website, please. <laughs> the link is also on Twitter. If you follow us on Twitter, our Twitter username is SFSN, which stands for Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Also join us on Sci-Fi Saturday Night.com or via TalkShoe or Ustream. But you already know that if you're listening. There you go. Oh. Hey, let me ask you, let's get more into a fanboy sort of thing here. What's your favorite story? Uh, you know, I'm so, if you're talking to me, I'm so immersed. Any of you. The cat has, has become my favorite short story just because I've become so, so immersed in it back and forth. Um, but I did have a few other, you know, kind of far out stories that were, you know, that were sort of in my top five of, of choosing to start with. But, um, yeah, I, I really, I really, I love, I love the, the uh, concept of, you know, of this story that this person's going about his life and then he, he's in a traffic accident and they say, you know, you're, you're not a human. We can't treat you. You know, you're, you're manufactured by something else. And it just opens, it just, what a great premise for a story. It's, it becomes, you know, a mystery saga of, you know, oh, how do I find out who made me? How do I, how do I find out what I'm made for? Um, and then when he when he eventually starts realizing that um, he has, you know, someone says, you know, you you're actually everything you're perceiving is is written on a reality tape inside you that's slowly unwinding. And when he discovers this, he takes reality into his own hands and says, well, if that's what I'm perceiving, and I, I'm not sure where that perception ends in the real world and where it ends with my own perception, what if I start? You know, the, the the reality tape that has punch holes almost like a uh, like a player piano, right. so it sort of reads it in binary code, right? So he says, "Well, okay, there's these holes that it's it's you know feeding the reality tape through my chest." So he opens up his chest, you know, he's pulling pieces out of them, and he says, "Okay, what if I what if I punch in my own holes, or what if I cover up some of the holes that are there, and then what will happen?" And suddenly you you take an incredibly different turn in the story where he starts deciding, well, in this case, I'm just going to create my own reality and see if that affects only me or see if it affects, uh, you know, other people as well. I have a favorite story. It's one that. It's one that I, I just read, actually, in while I was doing my research for this show. I came across, you know, of course, um, the Wikipedia entry for Philip K. Dick. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Um, it, it referenced... You didn't, you didn't use the Dickopedia? Uh, uh, oh, you beat me More of a it. dictionary. Oh. Thank you. Um, I, I don't think anyone should go to that website. They might get more than they bargained for. <laughs> um, and there it was, and I'm leaving it at that. Um, it, it referenced this, this story, which I found very compelling because it's very meta and very self-referential and it's called Orpheus with Clay Feet and I've only found one collection that it is present in it's called The Minority Report and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick and it's by Kittadel Press and it's just so compelling And, and so the Wikipedia entry said you know he wrote this under this pen name which turns out to be the main character of the book, who is an author, who by the end of the story publishes a story by the same name under the pen name Philip K. Dick. 
And I thought, <laughs> well, how awesome is that? I have to read that story. <laughs> it's and just cool too thing, cool. And the cool thing is, with PKD, if you are willing to embrace the premise, he takes you on some of the best rides I have ever had the honor to read. I'll be honest with you. My favorite, uh, well, clearly my favorite for years was the Scanner Darkly, but I didn't find Ubik until years later. And that was the one I was reaching for earlier, where the coffee pot, the shower, the bathroom, the refrigerator uh, demand money before they do their, <laughs> before they're allowed to uh, uh, perform services for uh, the main character, whose name is Joe Chip. And uh, I find the name Chip kind of interesting because it was kind of like a poker chip. And uh, it was also uh, uh, a metaphor for uh, things that are very slightly broken or chipped. And there, there was this whole little wordplay that ran through the whole book that I just found so, so wonderful. Nice. And we Good. still haven't mentioned the fact that no one knows where the PKD robot has gone to. I should say the android has that's gone the to. The android, true. that's right. That's you're, right. you're right. The, the last I had heard, uh, it was on a flight to to Japan. Um, I think after the San Diego Comic Con, where it was, where I think the daughter saw it for the first time, and I think it was very strange for them to see this animated, uh, you know, robot of, of their father programmed to talk and say things and, okay. and answer. And then I think it was it was put on a plane to Japan for an event in Japan, and I think when it arrived. Nobody could find it. The box was empty, as I recall. The so, crate that it was supposed to be in. There's this robot of Phil K. Dick at large somewhere. <laughs> oh. I sold on the black market for Mucho Dinero. And a chill runs down my spine. Maybe it doesn't wow. know it's an android. <laughs> no, it wouldn't know it's an android. It really <laughs> thinks it's Philip K. Dick. And who are we to say it's not? Well, it might have been reprogrammed by now. It might think it's Ian Anderson and be touring with Jethro Tull. <laughs> Perhaps. But uh, it's amazing. You know, for years, my favorite novel of his was Vallis. And mm -hmm. I even, just last year, a, friend, a good friend of ours was asking me, oh, what's the best book to get into Philip K. Dick with to start? And I said, you know what? Try this one to start. I mean, because this is, the, this is the acid test. I mean that literally. And I tried to reread it just to prepare for tonight's show, and it was like reaching for a glass of lemonade and coming away with a handful of live snakes. <laughs> I had to stop snakes? right quick. And I was like, you know what? I am not happy enough to read this. <laughs> I need to wait till a nice summer day before I read this again. It's a great book, still one of my faves, but it is a journey into madness. There were parts of the 70s that were not kind to of Mr. Philip K. Dick. and There were parts of the 70s that weren't kind to of a whole crap load of people. I got news for you. Well, for my age, the 70s were the world of Sid and Marty Croft, so... I yeah, I was going to say, for me. Yeah, Sid and Marty Croft and drinking <laughs> Dr. Pepper. I'd Good. just like to say that two of us were not yet 
around in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Th thank you, techno heads. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what? Sorry. Are they talking about that faraway time, the 70s, again? <laughs> I, they are, yeah. Those old people are talking about the 70s, oh. damn it. Didn't hey, you like kids, get off of my dance? damn electronic lawn. <laughs> Dome? Was, was Jurassic Park, was it accurate? Were the dinosaurs like that back then? <laughs> they were, they were. They were absolutely like that. Those <laughs> bastards. But on that note, we have our third oh, trivia question tonight. We have a third trivia question for the evening. What's this question? Our third trivia question tonight. What is Philip K. Dick's term for waste that seems to grow on its own? And no, don't answer with one of his wives. That's, <laughs> that's the obvious answer. Just don't oh. go there. You know, it's, it's funny, but uh, David, we've been sharing among ourselves a BBC uh, documentary of uh, the life of Philip K. Dick uh, that was produced in 2004. It's a really, really interesting oh. documentary. No, it's from the early 90s. Was it really that early? Yeah. Th there are a couple of them. There, there's one from the 90s, and there's a more recent one. Um, and, I, and, I, love them. I love them both. I mean, there's probably more, but there's a couple that I've, I've listened to over and over. Like, I love documentaries anyway because I can just work to them and listen to them. This is the one with uh, Terry Gilliam and Elvis Costello doing cameos. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that one? Yeah, 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 I love it. And it, it's funny, but, you know, as, as they walk through his biography, and the shots are mostly in black and white, very few of them in color, and the ones that are in color have this very washed-out look to them that, uh, that interestingly enough, uh, when... Uh, they did the movie. Uh, it had that with the animation, uh, Scanner Darkly. It had that same kind of uh, watercolor, washed out color look to it. And. Uh, I have a question for David, actually. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, I'm absolutely in love with the art in Kabuki, that um, watercolor pen and ink style. And I was wondering if you are allowed to tell us the art with the art you're doing for the Philip K. Dick adaptations. Are they going to be in that watercolor style, or is it going to be something new and different we haven't seen from you yet? Well, th thanks for asking that. Thanks for what you said. I painted uh, a cover for the issue number one of Electric Ant. That um, it's actually sort of the, the avatar of my of my Twitter page. So uh, I think I've retweeted you before about this, this show. So you can take a look at it there if you haven't seen it. But um, yeah, I use watercolor and acrylic and a little bit of collage uh, on that as well. Um, but for the, for the majority of, of this story, it has, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing it, I'm adapting it, but I, I'm working with a, a different artist, a French artist for the, the interior works of it. And it's an incredible artist named Pascal Lixay who had sort of a, a really interesting European vibe to the story. And there's a, there's a colorist named Chris Sotomayor who's, 
who's adding a really fascinating color style to it. So it's, it's actually quite different than, than something I've seen before. Um, and also Paul Pope is a, is a really good uh, author, artist, who I asked to do some, some covers on this as well. And I know he's a huge Philip K. Dick uh, fan. So there's a, there's a variety of different art approaches on these stories. Nice. Who else can we expect to see? Any other artists lined up in the future? Yeah, you know that that was my that was my idea was that I would do I would adapt a short story. Um, you know, each short story I, I would love to, to adapt quite a bit of the located short stories. You know, we're starting with Electric Ant, so if it is successful, um, I imagine we'll be able to continue adapting more located short stories. And my idea from the beginning was to was to adapt it and, and write it and then then work with a different artist for, for each short story. So oh, what a great idea. Uh, oh, my God. What if you awesome get that, that one about the King of the Elves, if you could get Charles Vess. Uh, be oh, I love Charles Vess, too. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, it would be wonderful. Um, and, and Paul Pope was actually the, the first guy that I discussed it with. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Pope. Oh, yeah, um, THB and going back. Yeah, yeah, Batman, Year 100, THB, 100% uh, Heavy Liquid. A lot of them are very you know, sci-fi you know, influenced. I think very, um, you know, Philip K. Dick and, and, and Herbert influenced in a lot of his work. Um, Frank Herbert. Um, he, we, we, he just wasn't able to do the, all the interior artwork for this first project because he's committed with something else. But he said you know, he would love to do a, you know, another story. So if it works out, that would be super to, to work with him. And um, there's a lot of other artists I'm a big admirer of that I would I would love to collaborate with. Ultimately, it seems to always come down to you know just scheduling. You know, so many artists have yeah. so many you know uh, projects scheduled ahead of time just because they have to. You have to do it that way just to be able to make a living. So it's just a matter of you know who's whose schedules mesh you know with the schedule for the project. Speaking of uh, King of the Elves, Disney announced that they were going to do uh, a three-dimensional adaptation of that for Christmas 2012. I think it's now up in the air whether or not they're actually going to do it, but I'm actually not excited for Disney-fied Philip K. Dick. I don't see how <laughs> well, it could work. Well, don't forget, Disney is now, you know, the, the, mouse of house, the, the House of Mouse now owns Marvel. <laughs> I know. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, uh, Disney recently acquired Marvel, and uh, you, you know I should mention that also um, about about you know Phil K. Dick being at Marvel. That's sort of an interesting story itself. You know, I wasn't working with Marvel on this project when it began. You know, I was just recruited directly by Tommy Pilata, the the film producer of Scanner Darkly and Waking Life, um, and working directly with with the Dick Estate. And they, I guess it kind of leaked. They said, you know, some other people heard that we were working on this project, and they got offers from other publishers to, you know, to already do this. They said, we heard David Mack is, you know, you heard David Mack for this, and you're full of short stories, and we want to be in business with you, and we want to you know, publish this. Um, so they were, they were kind of fascinated by this, like, early on. And I said, well, you know, yeah, you know, maybe we'll go with those, but... You know, I'm doing some work for Marvel right now. They're the biggest publisher, and they've had incredible success adapting Stephen King to Marvel Comics, and maybe oh, we can absolutely. possibly use that as a kind of template for, for how this would work. Uh, so with your blessing, let me um, 
let me offer this to to Marvel if you're if you're interested in Marvel doing it. Um, and they they gave me their blessing, and I I met at Marvel at the Marvel offices in New York with the publisher Dan Buckley, and you know told them what we were doing and what we had planned to do, and you know we were sort of we were already working on it and already working it out, but he liked the idea, and so I just I kind of introduced you know the the Dick Estate with Marvel, and then after that I think it took him about six months to work out the the legalese of, of the situation. Um, but yeah, it was, it was sort of like an unlikely story. And then, then they're, they're in business together for the project specifically for, for this project. Nice. Wow. Very cool. Very, very cool. And I, I should also say, uh, Brian Michael Bendis is a, is a, is a Phil K. Dick fan too. And we were big fans of Blade Runner. So I, I, mentioned it to him early on, so he's sort of like a special executive editor uh, on the project as well. Wow. In addition to writing, like, what, what, half a dozen (laughs) titles right now? (laughs) You know, overseeing the Marvel Universe? Wow. That's wonderful. Awesome. You know, I wish you the very best with this. I, I am really excited to see this, you know, Electric Ant. Come out now. That's coming out in uh, April. Yeah, that's right. The first issue hits in April, and it's a five-issue story, and I believe it's it's monthly starting in April. And then, how soon after that will we see the trade? I don't know about that. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I would guess hopefully by Christmas, but I don't. I'm not in charge of that department, so I really couldn't give you any educated answer about that. Have you made a decision on the next story that you're going to tackle when this one's done yet? We we have some runner-ups from when we were trying to figure this out before, but yeah, I think it'll it'll just be you know myself, Tommy Plata, and the Dick Estate. We'll probably ask Jonathan Leatham too, and we'll probably you know go back over it and, and debate the pros and cons of what would be the next story, and also possibly who we think the, the right artist would be for a particular story and if they're free, you know, at the time to do that story. Can, can you tell us the possibilities? <laughs> or are you not at liberty to say? You know, there, there's a, it was a really interesting... I'm, I'm actually going gonna, gonna to mention one that's kind of a, it's kind of a, a far-out story that's not, it's not that popular. I can't remember the exact name at the moment, but it's the one where this guy makes this machine that when he feeds music that he composed, any kind of music into the machine, the machine interprets that music into a living creature. Do you, do you remember this story? No. I think it might have sort of like, a, you know, sometimes he would make up weird names for creatures or for certain machines or something. I think it might be one of those weird, weirdly titled stories. But the story itself was fascinating to me. Wow. And I, so if he takes Beethoven sheet music and he feeds it into the scanner, out comes the incarnated version of what would be Beethoven sheet music, uh, like a completely different evolved life form. Translated. Oh my head! <laughs> so I thought, yeah. So you, in, in essence, you could anything that's written, like you could take Moby Dick and put it through the machine, and you would have a living entity that would be the the living entity translation of what Moby Dick uh-huh. would be. As a creature, right? Oh, or the Bible, my God. or any kind of you know, or the Beatles, you know, any kind of music or, oh. or put through this. I thought, oh my goodness, what a uh, 
I mean, that's something I would have loved to work with Jack Kirby on or something. It was like a very Kirby. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Oh, my God. Somewhere in Glasgow, Grant Morrison's just kicking himself, going, oh, I could have thought of that. <laughs> now, are you going to avoid things that have already been adapted into film, or are you thinking about um, doing an adaptation of Minority Report or doing a direct stream of Electric Sheep yeah. or any of those? Yeah, I, I would... Yeah, I think I think early on we were we were thinking just to go in different directions with stuff that that hadn't really been um, adapted before. Although you could say I, I don't know if this is official. Certainly not official with with Dick himself. Cause this is a, like the official first adaptation with them. But if you're familiar with the Frank Miller Jeff Darrow comic book called Hard Boiled, oh yeah, um, yes. you can see in a way you can see that it's kind of like a loose adaptation of Electric Ant in a sense where there's a traffic accident at the beginning and the guy realizes after the traffic accident that he's in fact you know machine and not human and he but it's it's not a it's not as straight an adaptation but it's sort of there's rumors that it's sort of a loose adaptation of it but that kind of came to our attention later but the, the Dickens they knew nothing about it though but that was kind of the rumor of it you know, it's funny. I, I was just reading in and I'm Alive and You Are Dead. Dome, you hit like one of the prime times to r- write to him because that was when he had just met Joan. And I know. He was very happy. I and know. And it was less than a month before he um, went to France and gave that speech and just disintegrated again. So you got it bullseye when he was oh. like, "Yes, I'm in happy not happy land, and Dome, you're wonderful, and everything's oh. wonderful. I know. Is wonderful. Yeah. I know, I know, man, man, this this is this has been better than I thought it was going to be. To be honest with you, Dave. Really? Oh, good, really? good. I thought you had high hopes for this episode too. Uh, I did, but we never know how what's going to happen. I mean, you know, we've had some people who we thought were going to be terrific. We're not going to name names. No, we're not going to name names. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Nobody's saying anything. Mansquito? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first episode that no one has said Mansquito on the air. You may there be right. Go. Do you know why? Because I don't think that there, there was a, a it's long... Not it's not relevant. <laughs> there wasn't a point at which we weren't oh. really just intently listening to each other. Yeah, well, I mean, we could have spent the night talking about Caprica and Smallville, but I mean, I'm really, I think glad, that's a we didn't. I'm really glad we did, to be honest with you. Why would we have talked about either of those things? So well, disappointed in Caprica right now, it's not even funny. And Smallville? Really? Hey! Oh, it was good. The, I have all right. It. I know it's not Marvel, but the Justice Society was really good. Jeff Johns wrote a really good episode last There's night. There's one in a row. Yeah. Oh my one episode does not a series make. Sorry. Oh, hell no. Are you kidding? I mean, Dave, my grandmother calls me after every episode of Smallville to mock it. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> She's like, I can't. Brian, what the, what's the bottled city of Candor? Because it sucks. And I'm like, I love you, Grandma. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's wonderful. Now you have to understand his grandmother. I took her to see Sin City and she almost got us kicked out for laughing too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, we're an odd little from well, happy Easter. <laughs> we are an odd little bunch, I must tell you. Yeah. 
Okay. You know, you know, David, we could probably talk for another three hours, but we've run out of time. And it pains me to say <laughs> that we've run out of time. It has been uh, probably one of the coolest hours we've had uh, in a very, very long time. I can only think of uh, two other shows that I've done that are really... I, I, this much fun for me, quite we frankly. We are having a good streak right now. We, we are. Good and, interviews of late. And the other thing is, I think we would absolutely love to have you back on after you've gotten a few of these stories done and we've read them, and we can ask you about certain instances of your experience in creating these. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Oh, that would be awesome. So we have and, a sci-fi uh, Saturday night read-along. Yeah. <laughs> once we once we posted tonight's show, I mean, feel free to link to it as you know uh, for promotional tools. Absolutely. And anytime you have any new project to promote, please give us a call. We'd love to help you push it. Super. Super. We we are huge fans of your work. Absolutely huge. Yes, yes, yes. Etc. <laughs> I'm actually kind of disappointed you won't be be at uh, Boston Comic Con as far as you know because. I was hoping to pick up a couple more prints, but that's, that's just me. But where could you pick that's up? That's going to change. I, I will. I would love to go. Yeah, Dave, please plug your websites before we wrap. <laughs> uh, there's a fan site of my work called David Mac Guide, like tour guide. DavidMacGuide.com. I have my own site, DavidMac.com, but I never update it. But uh, this fellow <laughs> David Thornton updates this almost every day. Way better than my site. Incredibly expensive. Anything you'd want to find out about my work, uh, you can find there. And if they'd like to uh, link to our uh, podcast tonight, they're more than welcome to. Absolutely. Mm, super. So, as much as it pains me to say this, the clock on the wall says, ow! So, from the Four Color Vault Comics in Whoa, Manchester, New Hampshire... Just, just a second. I think we have to say thank you to a couple of people first. We will in a second. Oh, okay. oh you're welcome. Uh, not you, X. <laughs> Good try, I was, though. I, I was going to say thanks to uh, the dead redhead for joining us tonight. Thank you, everyone. David, I am such a huge Kabuki fan. Please let us see some more of the current series, because I'm jonesing to see some more of it. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And from the Alston Brighton Hellmouth Sombrarian, thank you for joining us tonight very, very much. You're very welcome, sir. Oh, it has been an honor, David, an absolute honor to have you with us tonight. Oh, and before we wrap, I just need to read off that uh, Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic-Con, where you can meet the cast of Sci-Fi Saturday Night this April 10th and 11th. Check them out at uh, bostoncomiccon.com. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is also the official podcast of Comic Art House, your source for original comic book artwork. Go talk to Bob and Kim Shaw at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on your favorite artists. Just coming up in the weeks to come, next week we will have Scott Wegner, the artist of Atomic Robo. On February 20th, Bill McEntee, educator and video game designer. February 27th, Steve Letary, the head of SciFinal.com. And on March 6th, uh, Jess K. Hartley's personal friend, David Niall Wilson, will be on. Ooh, that's a new one. We got a new one. We've got all sorts of good stuff coming up. And then we'll Rock be at, on. At, at both Granite Cons, right? <clears throat> 
And they're both great at cons. <laughs> I responded on Facebook as attending, so we're going to be there. <laughs> yes, um... We'll take that as a yes. Okay. So, from the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, thank you guys for joining us. Our pleasure. Uh, from the Alston Brighton Hellmouth, Creon and Lansombrarian, thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor talking with you. Please stay in touch, and you know my love and appreciation for the works of PKD. And, <laughs> and we're done now, really? From Area 51, I am the Dome, saying the basic tool for the manipulation of reality is the manipulation of words. You can control the meaning of words. You can control the people who must use those words. Okay, Dick says, night, everyone. <laughs>